On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, certified financial planner, certified investment management analyst, and co-founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with your host, Brent Mikosh. Brent, what's going on? Well, not too much. I'm actually getting ready to get a trip next week. So uh, we talked about it a little bit uh, offline, but just trying to get everything done before I get out of here. So <laughs> Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm looking forward to hearing all about it when you get back. Absolutely. Got to get a few work things done before you, before you leave. And one of those things is you have a guest in the studio today that, that's joining you. And, and I have no idea what you're talking about today. So I'd like to well, know. I, I'm excited about this. I've got Jamil Corey on and he's the CEO and uh, I believe, were you the founder of Aravipe as well? I am the founder, yes. The fa founder of Aravipa. And for those of us uh, that are in the running community, particularly if you're here in the Valley, if you're in Colorado, I know you guys have expanded quite a bit as well. You definitely know this company. Um, and also, if you're at all in the ultra running world, you are familiar, familiar with Jamil because he you're kind of an ultra running legend. And I, I, I don't put that lightly. And uh, so he's been kind enough to come in here today. And we're going to talk about a, a number of different things. We're going to talk about running a business that um, is an extension of your passion, an extension of something that, that really, I think, defines in many cases, may not define who you are, but it's a big part of who you are. Uh, and we're going to talk about a lot of issues around that. So before I kind of dive into some of the questions I have, uh, Jamil, you want to give us some of your personal story first and, and how you ended up starting and founding this organization? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, grew up here in the Phoenix area on the west side of town, like a fourth generation Arizonan. So I've got deep roots here in the state. And grew up in the outdoors, grew up like Boy Scouts and also running in high school. That's kind of how I found my passion and parlayed that into trail running and ultra marathons in college and beyond. And eventually had the opportunity to take over a race here in the Phoenix area. It's called the Haviland 100. It's a 100 mile foot race outside of Scottsdale and grew that event from about 150 participants, we now get close to 1,300 and started Aravipa running in 2009 with the whole goal of giving more accessibility to trail running events for the community. And that's how I came across Aravipa when I got into trail running. I mean, I credit Aravipa and I credit you specifically as the founder of the company for the fact that I feel like I know a lot of these mountains that we're blessed to be surrounded with here pretty intimately well through some of the events that I've done with you. But I want to backtrack a little bit more because I read some of your bio and you had mentioned that um, you did a little bit of running in high school, but you didn't get into the ultra running thing until age maybe what, 20, 25, somewhere in there? Yeah, I was 20 when I ran my first ultra. Okay. And what was the attraction to that? You know, I saw a shirt. It was from the Across the Years event. And on the sleeve, it said 24, 48, and 72 hours. And I thought, that sounds insane. And I want to know what that's like. I want to know how far can I run in that amount of time. And so was that your first event doing the 24-hour event? So I did sign up for Across the Years. And they had this 12-hour night training run that was three months before that event. And so me and my brothers just showed up to that event and really had no clue what we were doing. And how did it go? 
it went pretty well. So I had run one marathon. My brothers who were actually younger than me at the time had only run, I think a half marathon distance. And we all showed up and ran through the whole night, walked, ran, hung out with the other participants. It was on a short looped course. And I think we all did around 50 miles. Wow. Wow. And now I also read in your bio that you, you went to college. I think you had, you had, it was an accounting degree. Yeah. Accounting and economics. Okay. And so you got this degree now you're going to enter the business world and, and sit behind a desk for a while and put, put on the, the, you know, the visor and everything like accountants, accountants do during tax time. Um, but you had an experience that sort of changed your trajectory pretty significantly. Yeah, I did take a, a tax accounting position here in Phoenix and told them going into it, I was going to take a month after tax season ended, I was going to hike across the state of Arizona on the yet to be finished Arizona trail. And so I did that. It was, I think, April 17th, I was on the Mexico border, took 31 days to hike across the state, uh, which was quite life-changing. Traveling at that pace, at that speed, it, it separates you from the busyness of the world and and all the demands. And I actually never went back to my job after that and eventually founded Aravipa about a year later. So when you were doing this hike, uh, for those, you're talking about the Arizona Trail, which runs from the border of Mexico, essentially through the state of Arizona up to Utah. And I've, I've been on sections of it, but certainly never the entire thing. Was that self-supported? Did you have people that were doing food and, and water drops? Because <clears throat> there's some pretty dry country between Mexico and, and, and Utah. Yeah. So I did a combination of had family and friends meet me at various sections on the trail to get a resupply. And then I also mailed myself some of my food boxes in advance. So you can actually mail a package to a post office. They'll hold it for you. You just say hold for hiker. And as long as you're there between business hours, you can pick it up. Very cool. And so obviously during that journey, you decided that in the account, life as an accountant wasn't for you. Was there a moment on the trail where there was that epiphany or did it happen over the period of that month? I think it was over time. And certainly my goal in life was never necessarily to become an accountant or a CPA, although that's something I was considering at the time. I'd always wanted to own my own business. I come from a long line of business owners. My dad never worked for anyone else. He graduated college, took out a loan, opened a grocery store, built it from the ground up. So something that I always aspired to do, just hadn't found that thing for me yet. And so while you're on the trail, did you put the idea for Aravipa? Was that was that coming together in your mind while you were on the trail? Not exactly. There were some pieces of that that were coming together. I had just agreed to take over the Havelina 100. And so I had that to look forward to that October. So I hiked in April, May, and I had that on the schedule. Although at the time it wasn't it wasn't something that seemed viable as a business or a career. It was just something that I was passionate about doing. So I really dove in. I just lived off my savings and I wanted to put on the best event possible. Now, when you sort of reemerge in society here and you, you come back with this major life change, did you get a lot of pushback from people around you? I, I don't know that I really did. My parents are pretty supportive of my decisions in general, as long as I'm taking care of myself and, and they actually jumped in and helped out with the event and had kind of the same, the same passion that I did for it. And so the event obviously went, went over well because it's continued to grow since then. What, what happened next? Yeah, the event went well. I continued to, to kind of travel around and I think it was around the next summer. It's kind of running low on savings through various odd jobs I was doing and 
decided to take the plunge. And I had heard about a couple friends in the industry. There was a group out of California with Pacific Coast Trail Runs. There was a husband and wife. They were organizing events, making a living doing so. And there was another couple in Texas, Tejas Trails. And they made a business around organizing events. Some of them did some coaching. And to me, it seemed like there was an opportunity here in Arizona. There were events that had a tough time keeping race directors on board, people with full-time jobs, trying to do a race director job on the side. It is a ton of work to organize these and just saw this opportunity. There's all these amazing regional parks around Phoenix, as you know, and there weren't a lot of events at the time. So I just saw an opportunity and started Era Viper running. And now what year was that to give us? So 2009. So 2009. So you coincided there almost very fortuitously with Born to Run, yep. which was uh, with Christopher McDougal. Am I right about that? Yep. Uh, came out came out with this book for listeners that may not be familiar with it. Even if you don't run, it's an absolutely just fantastic read. But that was a book that I read when I first started getting interested in in longer distance running. It definitely changed your idea of what normal was for sure. So you sort of, did, did you see that? Did you ride that wave with a business? Could you see an immediate uptick in interest just because of this cultural thing that was happening? Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a boom. There was, I think, an initial boom around the time Dean Carnassus published his book, Ultra Marathon Man, that's right around the time I got into the sport. And then the Born to Run was a big boom. I think the storytelling just captured people's imagination about the Tarmara Indians of Mexico and all the lore behind that. And we've seen a pretty continuous growth in the sport that continues to today. So now as you're you're diving in, you start with the Havilene 100. What was the next idea where did you think needed to be showcased here in the valley yeah so we created the the desert runner trail series which is that series of smaller events at all of our regional parks here and so it was a distance for everyone it was something that had a short distance like a 5k or a 10k and then all the way up to 50 kilometers or 50 miles what sort of issues, if any, did you have with the permitting process because that's you can't just roll in with a couple hundred runners into a into a park Sure. Fortunately, because I had produced the Havilene 100, I had the reputation of that event. That event happened for five years before I inherited it. And I used that as leverage. So I had connections at McDowell Mountain Regional Park. And we one of the first events we created is called the McDowell Mountain Frenzy. And I already knew the contacts and proposed this idea. And then the second event that I created was the Mesquite Canyon Trail Runs over on the west side of town, which is one of my favorite places to go hiking growing up. And that's like, I did I did your half marathon there this past spring. I have done the 50K of that one as well. That's logistically not an easy place to get stuff into. Can you talk about, for people that might be listening to this that aren't familiar with the kind of runs, kind of trails and races that you're talking about, talk a little bit about what, what this is like when you're going out for a half marathon or 30, 30K or 50K or even a 100-mile distance. The, the kind of support that the participants in these events are expecting and how you possibly deliver that. Sure. Yeah. Trail running in general. I mean, we're, we're going out there into the wilderness, into mountain parks, and these trails are not always accessible by roads. Oftentimes it's a four by four Jeep road, or sometimes we're literally carrying supplies out there. So for Mesquite Canyon, we're actually hiking up water about seven, 
thousand feet, 1700 feet of climbing just to get water out to supply the runners. Um, we have aid stations with food as well out there. And that's the thing is when you're, when you're coming through these mountains and there's nothing, nothing, nothing. And all of a sudden you come across, you know, in many cases, these, these are volunteers, correct? These aren't paid. These aren't paid employees. We, we do have some staff on our team helping to coordinate, but oftentimes it is volunteers. Well, it's, it's incredible because you come in and all of a sudden there's all the water that you want. There's food. There's all these different supplies that have been brought up. Do you get, um, obviously, if you're bringing all this stuff into the mountains, there's got to be an expectation from the parks that you got to get it out. So what do, what do those agreements look like with the with the parks and the cities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we follow the leave no trace principles. So we are pulling everything out. The goal is to leave it better than we found it. So we do mark the trails as well. So we've got to remove all the flagging, signage, and aid stations that we put out there. Now, how much preparation, um, I'm taking myself now back to 2022 in April, you've got a race up in Prescott, Copper, no, no, sorry, not the Copper, the uh, Whiskey Basin. Whiskey Basin, thank you. And you had 30K, which was at last minute, you guys had to do a course change because of a forest fire. So there's a lot of dynamic planning that comes with these things as well. Hey, do you guys know, or does your team know when you're coming into these events, what an A, B, and C option is going to be if for some reason there's, you know, we get monsoons in Arizona, we get wintertime rainstorms, we get wildfires, if something happens to change change the course? Yeah, I mean, we have a risk management matrix that we work with, and we're always assessing, especially race week, what are these factors that could affect the race and that could pose a danger to participants? We have a pretty good idea of the types of factors at each event that could affect it, but we don't know until we get there and see the current course conditions and we see what the weather is going to be like, whether we have to take action, either modifying the course, informing participants that there is additional gear to be carried and notify our medical teams what to expect. So while you're growing the business, you're also engaged in a lot of your personal running and different things, different events that you want to do. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, um, did, did being in the business of running and ultra running, did that feed your passion or was it something that now it's another day to job? I mean, my passion for trail running and long distance running, that's been there since that first event. I mean, even since I was a kid, I loved exploring in the outdoors and going on adventures, seeing nature. And so it's just been a natural progression for me. I think part of they call it the race director curse maybe is as you have organized more and more events, your running suffers. And I've had fluctuations over the years. There's certain times when I run less and then there's certain times when I run more. So it's a little bit of an ebb and flow. And for people that are listening and may not know who you are, what does running more mean to you? Running more. I mean, I've run probably close to a hundred ultra marathons ranging in distance from 50 kilometers up to 250 miles. What was the 250 mile race? That was the Cocodona 250, which is an event that you guys host that, I believe. We, yeah, we created it here in Arizona and it travels from Black Canyon City on the edge of Phoenix and finishes in downtown Flagstaff. So give me an idea of 250 miles. We're talking over a couple of days. Is it a stage race? We're talking five and a half days. You have 125 hours to finish, but it's not a stage race. So it's a nonstop event. You as a participant, can choose when to sleep, when to take breaks, or you could just run straight through. Okay. How many of the participants ran straight through? Was there any? I mean, everyone sleeps at some point, right. but some get by on very little sleep. We're talking a couple hours sleep over the course of 70 to a hundred hours of 
moving forward on course. Now, from someone that's only done the 50 mile distance a couple times, what's the order of magnitude difference between 50 to 100 than to 250? I mean, 50 miles to 100 miles, it's probably a magnitude of three, maybe in terms of effort level, exhaustion, and just men- mentality, I think. And then the 250 is anything like 200 plus is it's kind of a different sport again. I mean, it is, it's a multi-day event. And so you have to factor in sleep at that point, a hundred miler. You can, you can get through running through one night. It's tough. It it's brutal sometimes, but you can get through it. But that multi-day is just, it's a whole different level of hallucinations and mental challenges. Give me some examples. Uh, I mean, I haven't experienced a ton of hallucinations personally, but I've heard stories, people seeing trash piles on the trail that don't exist, mattresses, they're, yeah, they're hallucinating things out there. (laughs) So you you bring up an interesting, two questions I have for you around that. First, uh, and then we'll get back to the business side of things, but what do you think compels people? Because you're in the sport, you now have been thousands and thousands of people have been through your events. What is compelling people to seek out this level of suffering? They want to do hard things. They want to feel that pain and suffering and get to the other side of it. They want to see if they can get through it. And you think, um, cause I agree with that. And I think that, uh, in our society, everything is easy. You know, we can, we have abundant clean water 50 feet away from me. We have, uh, you know, we're in Arizona, it's an inhospitable climate, but we've got air conditioning. Some of us have swimming pools in the backyard it's a very easy life for most of us. And even, even those in, our, in this country anyway, that, that are a little less fortunate, it's still a very easy life relative to the rest of the globe. But what, what is it do you think that is in people that, that seeks out that? Is it, is it, is it about trying to figure out maybe a, a, diff, a different level who they are? Or do you think that that physical fatigue strips, strips so much of the, so much stuff away that, things naturally come up that need to arise. It's a kind of a weird question, but you know where I'm going with that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's all of it. I think yeah. we all want to feel that. And I think the satisfaction after being in such a low point and then overcoming that is something that's hard to feel in everyday life that we all have. Like you said, access, we can order food whenever we want, just gets delivered to our doorstep. But what is it like to struggle and to feel that and to overcome that struggle I think that's why a lot of us do this is for that mental piece of it. Is there a moment that you specifically remember from any one of your races that was maybe not life changing, but life altering that that you've kept with you that help you, that helps you through difficult challenges and business and personally and everything else. I mean, there's countless moments. I mean, the very first hundred miler hundred mile trail race that I did, it was the Angeles crest 100 in the mountains outside Los Angeles. And was fortunate enough to participate with my brother and we went out there. We, we didn't race it together, set out to do that. We were back and forth throughout the event, but we were at various points having highs and lows. And at mile 75, I was very broken, didn't know how I was going to continue on and eventually pushed through it. And we linked up after feeling so low and like we Like I was in so much pain, I was able to break through that. And I was running some of my fastest miles at the end of that race. And the euphoria around that, around crossing that finish line for the first time is just this indescribable moment that 
I, I don't get that feeling in most everyday life that I'm just going to work, driving, doing chores, things like that. It, it takes being out there in the woods, being broken down to then overcome that, to feel that. I was listening to a conversation uh, with David Goggins, who's a well-known guy and he's a culturally a well-known guy now, but even outside of the world of ultra running. And what he had said, which I think there's a lot of truth to that, is that he does these events because he learns more in a 24-hour time period than he would in a month. You know, so it almost accelerates it accelerates those life experiences. So let me ask you this. So now you're dealing, though, you, you're dealing with potentially up to thousands of participants, hundreds or thousands, that are now going through this, you know, that are going through these um, a lot of discomfort, uh, potentially for them life-altering experiences. People respond to stress in very different ways. Do you have issues at all with with um, with some of the some of the event participants? Not even not from not from a medical place, but um, from uh, complaints and things like you know things like that. Yeah, I mean, there's always some level of that. I would say in general, we have it's a really amazing community, and I think because in to some extent we are all out there suffering and we're suffering together, I think it does provide this bond of camaraderie that is different than maybe other sports that are out there. We all know that what we're going through, that guy or gal next to me is going through that as well in various times. And I think that draws us all together. Now, as a hosting these events, you know, the natural question is obviously you've got risk management from who insures these things. What does that look like? Yeah. I mean, there are some, there are some insurance companies that focus on events specifically you know, running events, biking events, the biking insurance is we do host some mountain bike races. The mountain bike insurance is more expensive than the running event insurance for sure. And so they're very, it's not the major carriers that do it. Cause when I've come out to your events in the past, what I'm looking at, I'm seeing, all right, thousands of people, you got to manage, you got to feed them, you got to get fluids and hydration in them. You've got potentially medical issues, rattlesnake bites, broken bones, those type of things. And then you've got just random acts of God, wildfires, everything else that can happen. And it's it's all amazing. It's it's an amazingly comp, complex risk management model. And so, if I was looking at it from the insurance side, I would just be like, "Wow, how do you how do you quantify the risk of these events?" I guess I guess you're looking at similar events that have been hosted across the country and across the world. You're looking at what accident rates are and everything else. But is it challenging to insure these events? It doesn't feel overall challenging. I mean, USA track and field does ensure a lot of these events. There's the Roadrunners Club of America. There's programs out there specifically designed for the outdoor events industry. There are certain permits along the way that are more challenging. For Cocodona, for instance, we're running near to or next to Arizona Department of Transportation, like highways, we're crossing roads. That usually has higher limits. So we're having to pay more for the coverage of some of these events versus just your local mountain park where you don't cross any paved roads. And for an event like uh, the 250 that you're talking about in Arizona, you're going through low, tons of different municipalities. And I imagine, is there private land easements? Is there, it's gotta be, it's not all public lands between between Prescott to Flagstaff. Yeah. I mean, it's our most complex event in terms of permitting, insuring, all of that. And there's probably upwards of 50 different agencies, counties, towns, private landowners, bunch of private landowners. And some, we, you know, we don't get the route we always want. So we have to be a little flexible. Sometimes we have to run further around this other area 
just because we can't gain access to some of these areas. How long did it put you to logistic and take you logistically to to create that that map, get permission from all the various authorities? Like how how long does it take to put an event like of that magnitude together? That one was probably between brainstorming and a full year of permitting, probably two to three years before it was even held for the first time. Okay. And now let's talk about um, the growth of Aravipa. So we talked about some of the early days and you began to add some some races here in a lot of the regional parks that we have around Phoenix. Talk about where you are now. Yeah, we've grown quite a bit. We're we're now in five states and we just announced we are acquiring White Mountain Endurance, which is based in New Hampshire. So there's five events up there and that's a pretty big move for us. We up until now have just operated in the Southwest. Arizona is our primary base. We have a small office in Colorado Springs and we have one event in Utah, one event in Nevada. And so we continue to grow our team. Um, we have probably 25 full-time employees and another 25 part-time employees between all the various things that we do. And how many volunteers on a, on a seasonal basis, I guess, or, or one calendar year for you guys, how many volunteers do you think are touching these events? I mean, well over a thousand between all the events. Wow. And so New Hampshire, that's a big, for, for those uh, that have not been up there, beautiful state. It's absolutely magnificent. Big step now because now you're dealing with you're going across the continent to host these events. What was the what was the genesis of that? Was it just a great opportunity that popped up, or was it something you wanted to do? Yeah, I, I think in my head I had always envisioned potentially going more national and thinking about what that might look like. How might we accomplish something like that? We have a lot of fans all across the country. You know, they're begging us to organize events in their home state. And this opportunity came up. There was a race director who lives up there and she came down for one of our events, actually bought a house down here and was her events were growing and she was feeling a bit overwhelmed and, and wanted the support of a larger organization. So she's staying on board directing the events, but now has access to our marketing, our media, our event expertise that we've built up over the past 15 years. So speaking of marketing, if you're at, how do you get the word out? How do you, is it, is it mostly word of mouth for you? That's just coming from within people within the community or is it, um, is it, is it social media? Is it, how you guys get the message that you have these events out there? It started a lot with word of mouth in the early days and building off the success of the Havelina hundred and, and really using that as our identity and, as something to point to, like for a while, I was known as the Havelina guy it was the guy that organized that race. And, and that's how we really built our reputation in the industry. But then from there it's expanded. I've always enjoyed the marketing aspect of things. So we've built up our social media. We've built up our YouTube channels, our video, just talking about what makes us excited about our events and just proclaiming that. And from there, the word of mouth spreads as well. So we've talked a lot. This is a, this is a complex business that you're running here. Uh, it's an event business. So 2020, March of 2020 rolls around. We've got this thing, COVID, that comes across. Talk to me about what that was like for you, your first impressions of it when you first heard about COVID. And then the first time that you realized that, hey, this actually might impact our ability to run our business. I mean, when did it first hit your radar? I mean, you kind of heard about it, but it didn't really seem real until the NBA canceled their season. And it was a big wake up call. And I think shortly thereafter, we had the the shutdowns and lockdowns and all that. And yeah, for us, it 
it was like running into a brick wall. We're events-based business. Everything we do focuses around these events. We take in revenue well in advance of our events. So we're- you spend it too. We're often, yeah, we're, yeah. especially with the staff, I mean, we're yeah. living on these future earnings. So we're, that money's constantly being spent, you know, every week payroll is going out, things are going out, things are being ordered, even though that event may be a while, a ways away, we've, we've spent that money already. So that was, it was a dire time for sure for the entire events industry, as many know. Yeah. How did you, so you basically you're being told by the government, you got to shut your business down first emotionally. What did it make you angry? I don't know about angry, but just a little fearful. Like, and just, I don't know for me, I'm just thinking, what am I going to do here? How am I going to keep my staff employed? That was my number one concern was I don't want to lose my team. I don't want to have to lay anyone off. Right. And it, you know, it's amazing that um, I cannot say pretty much. I can say every business owner <clears throat> that I've spoken with says that exact same thing. If they were in a business that was forced to shut down during that period of time, that was first and foremost in their minds was how do they take care of their employees? And I think it's not, I think it speaks volumes about most of, most of America that, that's running a business, that's running a business and how much they do care for their people. All right. So we've hit this brick wall. You don't have much time to pivot. What do you do? Yeah. I mean, our permits get pulled. We can't host these events. There's not even any sort of creativity that we can do, uh, at least initially. We can get to that later. But uh, what we did is we organized a virtual race and it was called Aravipa Strong. And we did that as soon as possible. I mean, we were, we immediately just went into action with my team. We created this concept. I think it was a 10 day challenge. You could sign up for anything from a 5K up to 100 miles, created a bunch of swag, logos, got the word out and said, Hey, community, we need your support here. Like, we don't, usually go and ask our community for support. We try and put on the best events possible and hope to attract people to run those events and join us for a great time and a great experience. But we, we went out and we asked for help. We said, we're not going to make it unless you come and run with us and support us. And we had an overwhelming turnout. People really got behind the idea. They, ordered extra swag and hoodies and all kinds of things. And we had 3,300 people, which is to date our largest event we've ever organized that mm. joined us for this Aravipa Strong event. That's that's absolutely incredible. So now when did things start to normalize for your business? So we went four months where we organized several more virtual events to keep the ball rolling until we were able to host our first in-person event again. And it was up in Colorado and we had to be creative. I mean, we had to stay on top of the regulations every week, the permits, staying in contact with all of our agencies. And they were trying to figure this out as well. How can we allow people to get together in an outdoor setting in what was considered at the time a safe way, uh, according to all of the different decrees that had gone out. And so the model when it first started up again was these small waves of 10 people, social distance. And so we just tried to push right up against that line wherever we could. Okay. What is allowed? How can we accommodate? Okay. We're going to extend our cutoff times. We're going to be out there way longer, but at least we can utilize these race entry fees that people had already paid kind of 
cut down on the amount we're going to credit and owe people in some future date. Right. And was pretty much, when would you say it was done? It was business as, as usual. I mean, we had issues all the way until I think March of 2021. So it was well over a year or it was over a year that we were still getting restrictions and potentially permits being pulled that we couldn't organize our events as normal. And you probably are watching, obviously the data at that point was, it, it was moving around, you know, so it depended, obviously if you go back to the time of all the COVID counters and everything else, different localities were doing different things at different times. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how you logistically did that, man. <laughs> it, it was just survival. It was trying to just figure out what we can do to host events yeah. in this landscape. So moving forward, what did you learn from that, both personally and from a business standpoint, that experience? Uh, man, I've, I mean, I always thought that I could adapt and work well under pressure. And I think for me, it proved I could. And it gave me confidence that no matter what is thrown at me, I can give it my best shot. I may not always succeed, but it it did feel like we did succeed through that. I didn't have to lay anyone off. We made it through. What was the story around the, around the country though? Because um, you're obviously in this world, so you're familiar with some of these other people yep. that made a living hosting this event. Was was it uh, not as, I guess it really depended on where you were. Yeah, I mean, that's a big piece. I know California was much more affected. They could not be as creative as we could with some of our in-person events. Arizona, Utah, Colorado were more open. California was just shut down for, I think, a year. So we benefited a bit from that. We had people coming over. So we definitely were stewards of just some of the local politics, I think, and yeah. the openness of the state. Um, but yeah, there's events that still haven't come back. Uh, there's whole companies that did not survive and are still shut down. You know, and the problem with that whole thing too, is if you're in a business and you're forced to lay off employees, you could have a phenomenal team around you, but if you're forced to lay them off, you may not get them back. I mean, life continues, life moves on. And, and to try to rebuild these teams or these businesses that, uh, that people took decades in many cases to put together, it's just something that's, uh, when I, uh, you know, looking back at this at the risk of getting political on it, no business is non-essential. It's up to the business owner and the, and the, and the people that they're supporting through that business to determine whether essential or not. It's up to the customer really to, to determine whether they're, they're essential. And, and the carnage, we were very lucky being in Arizona for sure. I had some friends from the Northeast where I'm from that came down here during that time that almost couldn't believe it. You know, that we were living semi-normal here. Um, but the carnage that, that that has ensued across the country in multiple industries is just I, I hope it's a lesson that we never forget and we and we we uh take a take a greater pause before we decide to take a twenty plus trillion dollar economy and stop portion you know portions of it. But enough about COVID. I, I talk about it because it, it is something that's so deeply impacted a lot of business owners, but uh but let's look forward. So we're through this now. You've got this expansion happening in New Hampshire. What what's your outlook for for uh, two questions for you. First, for, for Aravipa, where do you want to take it? And then for you personally, what's what's a big uh, goal or something that you'd like to succeed at personally? Yeah, I think, um, you know, for me as a business owner, I've had to adapt and evolve. And yeah, I don't know. I sometimes reflect, am I, am I the right leader as we continue to grow? You know, I have my own challenges too. And I think for me, in my business outlook, it's how can I evolve as a leader, as the leader of this company to delegate more, to 
let go of things, empower my team more as we, as we grow, because it's what I was doing that first year as the race director of the Havlina hundred, it's a totally different business now. I mean, I, I, it's funny cause I'm more and more behind the books and behind the computer getting out there less the early days. It was soup. It was really fun. I'm just course marking, doing all the, the dirty work, doing everything. And now it's, it's evolved. I'm managing teams. I'm out here doing acquisitions, which does keep my passion strong. I love, I don't want to keep doing the same thing. I love evolving my skill set and, and doing new things. And I'm very excited about the future of continuing to potentially acquire new events, work with new or other race directors around the country. I would love to continue to add events to our portfolio from across the country. And to me, that's an exciting new era for era viper running so i'm going to put you on the spot here what is your favorite era viper event that you, what's i don't want to say the best because that's not fair what's your favorite event that you guys host i mean i'll probably have to say cocodona now it's just this culmination of everything that we've ever done and that i've i've done as a person like crossing a state over this epic event that it's a life-changing event the people that finish this race it's wild to hear it. I maybe hope to create a life-changing event, but to hear people finish this event and say, my life has changed or I'm a changed person now because of this experience is very rewarding, very powerful to hear. And so how about for you personally? So you're, you're, you're creating these events, obviously, and, and most business owners that I've spoken with, the business is an extension of themselves. There's not There's not a separation. It's part of who they are. But there are also personal ambitions that, that are outside the business. Do you have any? And it might not be around running. It could be about around anything. Yeah, I think especially for a founder owner like I am, like I'm the guy that started all of this. A lot of what it is today is because of my vision. I feel very, very connected to it. Uh, for me personally, I've been extremely fortunate to get into the sport when I did to be fueled by the tailwinds of the growth of the sport of trail and ultra running. And myself, I've competed around the world. I've run most of the bucket list races that I've wanted to from Western States to hard rock to UTMB, but I've yet to finish the Barkley marathons. And for me, that is the event that I would like to finish someday. And you've had three attempts at Barkley. Is that right? Six attempts. Six attempts at Barkley. Yeah. It was an old bio that I read before you walked in. <laughs> Too many. We don't like to talk about three of them. They didn't go that well. So six attempts, but but like what, five people or 10 people have finished this thing since its inception. I think they just had their 16th and 17th finisher this year. They had perfect weather and I did not get in this year. So real quick, can you give us kind of a brief rundown of what the Barkley marathons are? Yeah, the Barkley is a race in... The mountains of Tennessee, and it is an unmarked trail with a lot of climbing. There's five identical loops that you need to run, and you need to to prove you did the whole loop. They hide about 13 books in the forest, which you have to find. This thing has, they claim it is 20 miles per loop. It's more like 26 miles, and has around 13 or 14 thousand thousand feet of climbing. A lot of it's off trail. You're having to navigate through challenging weather. And you have 60 hours to finish this, this race. And it is right on the edge of possibility because it's so difficult. So that's a, that's a major life goal for you. Now for listeners that might be listening to this and saying, you know what, I'm kind of curious about this world. 
Um, I'm not ready for barking marathons yet. <laughs> if, if you could even get into that, not ready for a hundred miles, not ready for a marathon. Um, one of the things that I think is phenomenal about your events is, is when you're hosting these things, you're hosting multiple distances, you're hosting from you know, 5k to I think there's some kids fun runs as well, all the way up. There could be a 50 mile distance or hundred mile distance happening the same day. What would you suggest to people, um, having not only your own experience, but seeing what, what running or at least the physical activity and caring about your personal health can do for people. What would you say to somebody listening that's debating, Hey, you know what, maybe I'll go out and, and try one of these things, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try it next year. What, what's your advice to them? Yeah, I think it's, it's a great thing to try out. I mean, even just doing, doing a hike or doing a supported trail run, you don't have to run, you don't have to be competitive. You can just go out there and take part in the community. And I think it's an incredibly uplifting thing, moving your body, getting outdoors, being out there with people. I think it's a very healthy thing to be doing. I don't know about going 250 miles. If that's a healthy thing, that's debatable. It's debatable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I'll be the first to say that, um, you know, I don't know if that's great, but, but it is, it can be life-changing. Um, but yeah, I would say find your local event, wherever you are. There's a lot of great local organizations across the country that put on grassroots events that are accessible to anyone and that you can explore places even in your own backyard that you may never have done before. All right. So how do people find you? How do people find our, find Aravipa? How do they find your organization? Yeah. Aravipa.running.com. It's A-R-A-V-A-I-P-A. -A -A. We picked the toughest way to spell a company name. Um, you can find me personally at Jamil Curry on most social media as well. Excellent. Uh, last question for you. Your reader, avid reader? Not super avid. Or when you're on the trail, what are you? Are you listening to music, or are you just dealing with the sounds of everything around you? I I'll listen to podcasts sometimes when I'm out there, uh, or I just usually like to just listen to the sound of nature. Give me two podcasts that you enjoy listening to. Uh, single track podcast. It's very much running related, and the All In podcast. Awesome. Well, Jamil, thank you so much for for joining me with this. It's definitely uh, insightful. I think that what you guys are doing, it's uh, it's certainly it's it's added a lot to my life. There's no question about that. And I, I really thank you from uh, the bottom of my heart for putting these events on. Because what else would I be going out to the White Tanks or the Superstitions? You know, or <laughs> all these all the Estrellas, all these wonderful mountain ranges that we have around here. I have you to thank for the fact that I know them a little better than I would have otherwise. So thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me on, Brent. Guys, this has been fantastic. This this is. This is what it's all about, Brent. You bring on guests that open our eyes to new things. Um, I am not a runner, and I just uh, just listen to these 50 miles, 250 miles. This is, just blows my mind. I mean, honestly, that is just incredible to me. So, Brent, thank you so much for bringing them on as a guest. And, of course, our last thank you will always go to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually helps others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 
0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.